children and youth here. And uh, Stephen asked me to preach, and it is my joy to do so. Uh, it's also, I, I trust, well, well, I hope, for the, the little over a year we've been going through Malachi, if you've been with us through that, uh, the, the times I'm preaching. I hope that's been a blessing to you. I trust that God's word to us today will be a blessing as well. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come to you now. We, uh, as we open your word, we, we want and expect you to move today. Give us ears to hear your word. Give us hearts that are eager to receive it. Give us attentiveness and that your Holy Spirit would work among us. That your Holy Spirit would help us to remember Christ. That your Holy Spirit would bring about conviction and repentance in our hearts. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. There may be days in your past that stick out in your mind as if they happened just yesterday. One of those may be uh, your favorite Christmas as a child, maybe the, the favorite present you got for Christmas, or it might even be, if you're a college student, receiving that acceptance letter in the mail your senior year of high school, or it might even be a wedding. If you're married, I hope that sticks out in your mind. We want to remember these things, right? And we even have certain days in our nation's history where we want to remember specific things. We have slogans like, remember Pearl Harbor, to help us remember. We also have another one that I'm sure most of us remember experiencing, and we still seek to remember, September 11th, 2001. We have a slogan we use, never forget 9-11. And so why do we have these slogans? What's what's the reason? It's because there are important days in our life, perhaps even in our nation, where we want to never forget. We want to always remember. And in the Middle Ages, it was common for scholars and men of prominence to to display a, a skull on their desk. And it was to remind them of something. It it even sounds kind of morbid, right? But there's a point to it. The skull was to serve as a reminder for that person that they, like that victim, they too will die. They called this memento mori, a reminder of death. And I think here, it's good for us to even see we have a memento mandatum. Malachi is telling the people of Israel they are to remember the commands of God. And he's doing this to help prepare them. So even for us today, we want to be prepared for the coming of the day, the day of the Lord. And so even as we come to this passage, I want us to see that we must remember and we must repent. Would you read with me in Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children 
to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I want to recap just the book of of Malachi really quick as we begin to look at this passage because it's been over a year that I've I've been preaching this and so I want to remind you or if perhaps you weren't here when we started I want to let you know what Malachi has been showing through what God's been showing the people through Malachi. The people of Israel have accused God of not loving them. They've offered half-hearted worship as they've sacrificed blemished animals and they've robbed God of their tithes. They've profaned the covenant of marriage. And they've even accused God of favoring the wicked. And so as we come to these few, these three verses that we just read a second ago, these are God's last words to his people before a, a period of 450 years of silence. Until the the coming of Christ, there's going to be a a period of silence where God is not speaking through the prophets to his people anymore. And the last thing he tells them is remember. He wants his people to remember, right? He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. This word, remember here, it's the only verb, the only command, actually, in this passage. And it's, it's not just a remember as in you need to know, but it's a remember as in you need to take action. We even see this in the giving of the Ten Commandments all the way back in Exodus, right? Verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then five times alone in Deuteronomy, God tells his people, and especially Deuteronomy 9-7, he says, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. For the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. He says, I want you to remember. I don't want you to forget. I want you to remember my faithfulness to you. And I want you to quit being rebellious and turn to me. So God exercised this great power to lead them out. He remained faithful. But yet Israel over and over and over again failed to remember their God. Failed to take action by obeying him. But this remembering is not not only just an action that God wants for his people. But God himself even remembers Just a few verses earlier at the end of Malachi chapter 3, it says the Lord paid attention and heard them. He heard his people. And a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He said, they shall be mine and I will spare them. Right, so God hears his covenant people. He writes their names in this book of remembrance. And he says, these are my people, they're mine, and I will take action. Even God's remembering shows he's taking action on what he knows and does. He's going to spare them of the destruction. And so every time we hear this word remember, in a biblical sense, 
It should invoke in our minds and our hearts. It's not just a mere knowledge that I might be able to pass an exam, but it's, it's a knowledge that leads to action. It's a knowledge that leads, even as it reminds us here in verse 4, what are they supposed to remember? Remember the law? And then we even see further clarification, the statutes and the rules. This is a summary, just a short way to say, all of God's commands, the people of Israel, were supposed to know them, remember them, and obey them. Right? And, and I even like this, this little part in there in verse 4. It says, remember the law of, of what? My servant, Moses. I think that highlights even Moses in this way. He's actually serving as really just a delivery boy. He's only giving the people what God has already told him. And so these commands, these statutes, these rules, instructions that the people of God are to obey, it's not because Moses thought they were good. It's because God gave them to them. God gave them these commands. But then also, notice, he commanded them where? Look in verse 4 again. He commanded them at Horeb for all of Israel. So this location, Horeb, uh, you, you might know it better as Mount Sinai. This is the place God gave his law to Moses to give to the people. But right before he gave it, in Exodus 19, we see something really interesting there. So this is before God gives them the law. So don't mistake, God's commands do not earn, well, Israel obeying God's commands don't earn them anything. It doesn't earn them salvation. It doesn't earn them to be God's prized possession of of his eye. Verse 19, before the commands come, this is what it says in verse 3 through 5. Tell the people of Israel. So God says to Moses, tell the people. You yourselves have seen, that, seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my co- covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So before he tells them, obey these commands, he says, you're my people, you're my prized possession. I've taken you, I've delivered you out of Egypt, out of bondage. And so Israel, being in covenant relationship with God, that is what's supposed to motivate their obedience. That is what fuels their obeying his commands. And so that's what is happening And just like marriage, right, you make a vow to your spouse. You're promising a future action based on a current love. You vow to be by your spouse's side in sickness or in health. At all times, until death do you part, you're making a promise of future action based on a current status of love. And so, like a husband wants a wife to be faithful to him alone, God is telling his people, remember me. I love you. I cherish you. I want you to show me devotion. I want you to love me above all else.
So God commanded these things to Israel. He said, remember and obey. And we too are supposed to obey. We don't obey these laws that Israel were given in the Old Testament. But Jesus in John 14 verse 15. Do you know what he says? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So even though Israel was supposed to obey these commands in the Old Testament, these instructions by God, and to show their devotion and love to him, even though we aren't required to do that now, we're still called to obey. Jesus, he says, if you love me, you'll remember, you'll keep, you'll obey my commands. And so while Israel failed over and over and over to remember and obey their Lord, I don't think we're too much different. I think often we fail to remember, we fail to obey. But thanks be to God, right? We don't have to obey the Old Testament laws because Christ has come and fulfilled every single one of them perfectly, fully, completely. He has obeyed it all for us. And so we draw near to God through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, church, Do you remember Christ? You remember birthdays by giving gifts. You remember anniversaries by spending time with your loved one, right? It would be a failure on my part at the end of this month when I celebrate my anniversary with my wife to just send her a text middle of the day, hey, I didn't forget, and then say nothing else, right? That's like, hey, Josh, you put no thought, you put no planning Uh, what's up here? Did you really remember or was it just something that popped up on your Google calendar to remind you? We celebrate holidays. We remember retirement, right? You set money aside for for money, for for retirement, and so you remember it. So I want to ask you, how do you remember God? Children show their love and remembering of their parents by obeying their parents. So you, children of God, how do you show your love and your devotion to him? It's by remembering. It's by obeying. And I don't know if you're like me, but one of the, the greatest ways that, I, that, that helps me remember, one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that, that, that I've done before and still try my best to do is scripture memory, meditating on God's word, that I might have my mind saturated in God's word, that I might remember him all my day. And the good thing about that is, is that the Holy Spirit takes the word as you think on it, as you read it, as you meditate on it. And he impresses it on our minds and our hearts. And he transforms our desires. He gives us godly, Christ-honoring affections. And so church, I want to ask you, when you're tempted to sin, do you remember Christ? Do you remember Christ because though he was tempted, yet he was without sin? Or do you doubt God's love? I want to tell you, remember Christ and his cross. 
Are you overrun by guilt? I want to tell you, remember Christ, because he bore your guilt before God on the cross. Church, remember Christ, our Savior. God's calling his people. He's calling Israel here to remember and obey. But they haven't. Their religion, their outward religion, their spiritual just tradition, it's mere ritual. So they must repent. And so even as Malachi is taking this word from God to the people, he says, Israel, if you want to know how to prepare for the day of the Lord, first remember Christ, and second, you must repent. Look at verse 5 and 6 again with me. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's a great warning here. There's a great warning that ahead, there's coming a day when destruction is coming. So Elijah is one who will precede this day. And if you remember Israel's history, Elijah is a prophet who came before Malachi. Elijah is no longer on the scene. He's no longer prophesying and telling God's people what they're supposed to do. So the question is, okay, there's... It's telling us that Elijah is coming. Does that mean Elijah is actually coming back? Or is it talking about there is this Elijah-like prophet who is coming? Who will precede the day of the Lord? Jesus in Matthew identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. This Elijah-type figure who comes preaching Repentance. And even in the angel's birth announcement in Luke chapter 1, he says that John the Baptist is going to be like this Elijah figure who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So over and over and over in the New Testament, we see that John the Baptist is this Elijah-like prophet who comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. In fact, he does this in Matthew chapter 3. In verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So John the Baptist, he came, he's preaching, repent, because there is one coming. There is a day that is coming, and it will be great and awesome. His mission, Elijah, John the Baptist's mission was to bring repentance before Christ comes. And this day of the Lord, it's, it is to Malachi, it is It is like it is one day. But it's referring, I think, to 
two different days, and, and, and through this day of the Lord, we see that there's going to be judgment on God's enemies. There's going to be salvation for God's people. And over and over in the Old Testament, when you see prophecy, there's almost always a current fulfillment, a, 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 something that happens soon, and then there's almost always a future, sometimes distant, fulfillment. And so Malachi speaks of this as if it's one day. And even if you're looking straight on, you might see one hand. But then looked at from the side, you see two hands. I think it's very similar. It's the same thing in this case. Where Elijah-like figure, John the Baptist, comes on the scene preaching. And then Jesus shows up. He's bringing salvation through his cross. But it also seems as if there's a future date as well. We know this is the second coming of Christ. Jesus will one day, without a doubt, come back again. And when he does, he will not come as a babe in a manger. He will come as a mighty king, bringing salvation and deliverance to his people. And he will come bringing judgment on those who stand against him. And so this Elijah-like figure that we see preceding Jesus' first coming, we also see that there will also be a second Elijah-type figure in Revelation 11 where there will be these two witnesses proclaiming repentance before Christ comes again. And so I want to tell you today, if you don't know Christ, we are in this in-between time. We're in what's called the last days. And look at, we'll come back to the beginning of verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6 with me. It says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. While we are in these last days, if you don't repent, this is what is coming. Destruction. If you don't turn from sin, you will suffer the judgment of God at the return of Christ. And so I want to ask, I want to tell you today, if you're here without Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, today is the day of repentance. Don't put it off. Don't be fooled because you don't know when you may meet Christ. John Bunyan if you know him, famously known for writing The Pilgrim's Progress, he was born in 1628 in the heart of London, just not, not too long before the English Civil War. He grew up in a, a very poor family. He had very little formal education, and he learned to read by himself. He feasted on medieval romances in which valiant knights underwent great trials and conquered villains and monsters. And then in his youth, he boasted a mouth so profane it even shocked the most wicked of men. And then Bunyan turned 16 in 1644 at the height of the English Civil War and he joined the army. And while on duty, he was drawn out to take part in a siege. 
and another soldier asked to take his place. And as he stood watch, he was shot in the head with a musket bullet and died. And so Bunyan came away from this experience and he wholeheartedly believed that this was proof that God had spared his life. Just think, he didn't know. But somehow, in God's plan, this other man volunteered to take his place. And so upon returning home, John married at the age of 20. And his wife was as poor as he was, and between them they didn't have a dish or even a spoon, and her godly father gave them two Christian books, of which he read and increasingly was troubled. His conscience was troubled until one Sunday he heard a voice saying, Will you leave your sins and go to heaven or have your sins and go to hell? Will you leave your sins and go to heaven or will you have your sins and go to hell? I want to tell you, based on God's word, if you're here today without Jesus, and you don't leave your sins. If you see your sin as more precious and more fun and life-giving than the giver of life himself, then you too will perish. Like the destruction promised upon these people by God. So you can repent. And if you repent, notice the change that Malachi tells us will happen. At the beginning of verse 6, let's go back to that. He says, And he, that is this Elijah-like prophet, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So if they will repent, if they'll turn to the Lord, if, if they will, it's a matter of the heart, right? Repentance is an internal thing. So this turning is on the inside, but yet it doesn't stay on the inside. It's made visible. True repentance is made visible in your life, in our life. It would be made visible in the hearts of God's people. And Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing 95 theses to the castle, door, castle church door in Wittenberg. And the first three, I'm going to summarize them. The first one says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And then the second and third go like this. Repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. This repentance, true repentance, does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless and unless, unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. So unless you have repentance in the heart that leads to external change, it is worthless. It is useless. That it is supposed to display itself in the killing of our sin. So if you're a believer, repentance is not a one-time event in your life. 
It's not a one-time, okay, I've turned from sin to Christ and, and that's the end of my repentance because none of us are perfect. So repentance in the life of a believer should be weekly, probably daily, if not even moment by moment. We should be repenting of sin. Asking God, would you help me to see where I fall short of your perfect glory? Perhaps you have blatant, obvious sins. Maybe you have hidden sins in your heart. I want to warn you today, if you are a believer in Christ, repent of every secret, hidden sin in your life. Because like freezing water, it can make a small crack really large until your life falls apart and crumbles. Sin is devastating. So I want to ask you, when's the last time you repented? When's the last time you begged God for mercy and thanked him for his forgiveness? And this passage even uses dads and their children to help us understand what it might look like. Dads turning their hearts to their kids. I want to even lump moms and dads in here, but but dads, do you turn from pride? Do you repent? Do sometimes you think your children get in the way of your career? Are you constantly frustrated and perhaps even bitter because they get in your way in the home? Do you repent of spiritual apathy? Do you have a need for that? I wonder even how many families may be spared years of dysfunction and years of bitterness if only we as fathers would lead the way of repentance in our families. And children, do you turn from selfishness? Do you turn from rebellion and disobedience? Would you even today forsake arrogance and the I know everything attitude that we as children can be prone to? And kids, will you learn obedience to your parents? That it might be even the primary ground for which you learn to obey our Father, our Heavenly Father. And how many friendships would last a lifetime if sin were admitted? How many churches would avoid church splits if grace and love were showed when Someone has wronged you. And think of the joy we experience in heaven. Some of the greatest joy, the greatest joy that we will have in heaven is being in the presence of our Savior. But even one slice of heaven, here's just even a slice of how wonderful it's going to be when sin is done away with and destroys or, or sin is done away with and, and can no longer destroy the peace among God's people. There's going to be no need for a department of defense because there will be no terrorists and no enemies of the state. There won't be any arguments or disputes because there will be no sin. The hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. The hearts of children will be turned to their fathers. There will be peace among God's people. 
Do you long for that? Are you repenting of sin that Christ would restore peace between you and the people you know? But even more, do you repent that you might be at peace with God? God has turned his heart to you in Christ. Like a father turning his heart to his children. God has absorbed your sin and forgiven your debt in the cross of Christ. And will you turn your heart to him in repentance? Each one of us stands where we must answer this question. And I want to tell you that a failure to repent, it's evidence of unbelief. So I want to warn you today, don't be caught failing to repent. Don't be caught in unbelief. Just like Malachi's warning the people here, I want to remind you today, remember and obey our Lord Jesus and repent. Make repentance your habit. Let us pray now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this warning that that there will be a day, this great and awesome, perhaps even terrible to some, day when Christ will return. We ask today that you would grant repentance to those who don't know Jesus. And we ask that you would give your children repentance. Perhaps there, there may be fathers and sons, or mothers and daughters here among us today where there needs to be repentance. Perhaps there's some of your own children that need to repent today even before they leave this building. Would you restore peace between us that we might be a people even? Like Jesus said that his disciples will be known by their love for one another. Would you help us to be a people that display love and who are quick to repent? We thank you for Christ absorbing the wrath we deserve, making it possible that we could be reconciled to you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.